So how many of you have been to Metcalf Station? Because I have not. It is a newer-ish backcountry staffed camp in the North Ponial Canyon, and their program is focused on the railroad history of the Cimarron area. So if you're not familiar with this camp, Trevor Lombardi joins the show today to tell us about the history of Metcalf Station, as well as spooky things that have happened at that camp from time to time. So a little bit about Trevor. He was a Trek participant in 2009. In 2013, he was a PC at Clark's Fork, 2014 PC Hunting Lodge. 2015 through 2017, he was a PC at Metcalf Station. 2018 and 2019, he was the camp director at Metcalf Station. So he spent quite a bit of time at Metcalf and has a passion for the area and the history. In fact, he is a co-author of a soon-to-be-released book titled Pride and Glory, the Cimarron and Northwestern Railway Company. So definitely check that out. I linked it in the show notes below. Like I said, this episode is a great mix of history and hair-raising, some might say horrifying tales, everything from an unexplained white mass moving alongside the canyon footsteps being heard, and the discovery of perhaps even a human bone. Metcalf Station has much to uncover regarding history and horror. So if you're like me and you have yet to have visited the camp, this will give you a little bit of background information and maybe something else to look forward to. And just for fun, I'm a bit of a poetry fan. So here's a quick bit by Edgar Allan Poe, who of course is famous for his eerie poetry. From every depth of good and ill, the mystery which binds me still, from the torrent or the fountain, from the red cliff of the mountain, from the sun that round me rolled in its autumn hint of gold, from the lightning in the sky that passed me flying by, from the thunder and the storm and the cloud that took the form of a demon in my view. Well, first of all, hi, Trevor. How are you this evening? Oh, doing just fine. How are you? I'm so good. I'm really excited to talk to you about your tenure at Philmont, which includes a lot of time at Metcalf Station, about uh, the book that you are working on with some other Philmont folks. So um, this is going to be a good one. And you are in Denver this evening, right? Yep. It is a nice fall evening. wonderful leave changes out my window and there was a nice dark overcast over it. And so it, it was, it was a wonderful afternoon. Oh, that's lovely. I'm glad. So like we do on the podcast, I usually start with, with people's, you know, background story and how they ended up at Philmont. If you want to start there, we can kick it off. Yeah. Uh, you can, Go straight into that, and that would be 100% Tim Resizen's fault. Uh, Tim is a Philmont alumni for, oh, I mean, I think he spent probably 15 or 20 years on staff in the 80s and 90s. 
and he was an assistant scoutmaster at my troop in one in uh, Lakewood, Colorado, at Troop One Sixty Six. And I see Tim regularly still. Uh, he handed me a railroad lantern last week. Awesome. That I have to clean up and just for my collection. But Tim, uh, Tim really pushed me to get my Eagle Scout, and that had to do with Philmont. Uh, in many ways, I, when I came out on Trek in 2009, I was probably one of the only scouts that was around base camp or on the trail, especially when they were in their Class A uniforms, and they were uh, they had life on their rank. And for me, it took a long time to get to even first class, and a lot of motivation issues and whatnot. And going to Philmont kind of helped push me to get to Eagle. And also Tim was also a very good mentor in that aspect. And when it came to graduation from high school, I really wasn't sure what I was going to do with my life. And I had my age out ceremony with my troop and Tim came up to me and he was like, hey, here's David O'Neill's business card. You may want to send in an application for Philmont and I'll give you like my recommendation to him. Right. Yeah. Uh, that was how I was able to get onto staff because I just didn't have really a plan after graduating. Tim's a great guy. I um, remember working with him during the, the fishing seminar. Yep. Uh, one yep. summer, one fall. And so your first summer on staff was 2013, which was actually mm-hmm. my la- my last summer. And you were uh, a program counselor at Clark's Fork. What was what was the summer like for you? I loved it. My first summer was one of the, uh, you know, blissfully ignorant of everything else that was happening that year. It started off with that fire, and then there was that lost hiker at Black Mountain. To top it all off, my camp director and assistant camp director had a feud going on that really made some dynamic issues for our camp. But for me, I didn't really register a lot of it until about the end of the summer. So in that regard, it was fine. I loved working at Clark's. I had a really eccentric cook from Louisiana. His name was John Brewer, and he he was a interesting individual. He had some euphemisms that would come out that I can still recall to this day. <laughs> he still uh, texts me once in a while. He uh, spent 50 years as a DJ on radio in Louisiana. He had a radio voice, very booming radio voice, like, but he had that Southern drawl behind it. So it was very, I don't know, kind of magical in that regard. The first time I met Gene, and you know, he, he passing this year was, was a big story. And the first time I met Gene Schnell, he had called up to the, to the cabin and he was waiting at the door by the chuck wagon area. And he said, unit 41 to Clark's Fork. And we go, this Clarks, go ahead. Can you have one of your staff members please give me a screwdriver at the gate entrance? And we were like, what does that mean? But the context behind that was, is it had rained. It was it was during the monsoon season, so there's a lot of rain happening. Danny, who is one of our program counselors, he's only there one year, but he ran that screwdriver down there. He told us later that he needed the screwdriver to knock the mud off his shoes so he could step inside the Suburban without getting it dirty because Gene had to have the cleanest car on the ranch. 
after that, he would come up to the cabin. He goes inside the kitchen and he says, well, looks like you boys are stocking up for the apocalypse in here. He had some issue with food, and I don't know if it was with backcountry camps, but he never would accept meals. And if he did, it was always a beef stick or something that out of the swap box. There was something weird with my schedule to where I was going to work at Bobian, and I ended up working at Clark's instead, which I think in the long run I had a lot more fun because we had cell service. And I could get a ride at the turnaround and get back into base because I didn't really like hiking in the backcountry. I think a lot of people that know me know that I'm notorious for hating hiking on my days off. And there'd be, why do you work at Philmont if you don't want to hike? And it's like, well, I wasn't there to hike. I was there to do the program and teach it to kids. First of all, I have to say you do an incredible Gene Schnell voice impersonation. It's almost <laughs> like I'm listening to him. <laughs> one of the one of the greatest honors I had, not to cut you off, but uh, when I worked the fall in 19, uh, there was a day where the winter guides, or well, the fall guides, were doing their radio check-ins, and I knew that it was probably the only time I'd get the okay to talk on the radio in a voice without getting in trouble from anybody because nobody's listening to the radio in the fall except maybe the locals because it to use that radio is just it's really like very satisfying because there's the two buttons and it has that chime that kick-in chime that's so iconic when you hear it in the warehouse and then when you hear it from the receivers in the backcountry it's like that iconic where you could predict when gene was calling the camps so after 2013, even though there were some challenges, you did come back for another summer, well, for several summers. In 2014, you were at Hunting Lodge. Hunting Lodge was uh, another uh, great, great staff, but and also some other strange occurrences. That summer, there was a bear that had broken into the cabin. When we would go to bed every night, some of us would leave the cabin, the door to the cabin kind of not latched entirely because the bear, the cabin's supposed to be bear proof. It was designed to be grizzly proof by Wade Phillips when it was built in the George Webster style in the late 1920s. We always thought it was funny that the cabin was actually younger than uh, Paul Grassi, who also uh, passed this year. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but uh, oh. Unit 201 and 41, great, great team. That that cabin was supposed to be bear-proof, and it wasn't bear-proof at all for what had happened, and that was because the door wasn't closed entirely, and it had probably smelled whatever we cooked for dinner that night and just pushed its way inside. And the Rumor mill that spread from that situation was that my camp director that summer, Amelia Trenga, had uh, punched it in the nose and it went out the back door. She just went along with that rumor because it just kind of came out of nowhere and just kept going with it. It never actually <laughs> happened that way. She, I think she just shoot it out. <laughs> By 13 and 14, I was getting pretty tired of bears. Fair enough. And, yeah. And then you spent the next five summers at Metcalf Station, which myself included, and some of the listeners haven't ever even been to Metcalf Station. So I've never been there. And um, so I'd love to hear about Metcalf Station. And it seems like it's a place that, you know, you kind of fell in love with because you stuck around. Yeah. The Phil News had put out an article 
about Metcalf during the summer and they had these blueprints printed up and printed in the paper. And that was when the Phil News was still on newsprint. Uh, I don't, I think it's all digital now or if they're even doing it, but a couple of years ago, it just turned into eight and a half by 11 pieces of paper. It was a, a schematic of the depot that just got built and the story about how there was a railroad in the North Ponyal Canyon. From my background, I grew up around trains. There was definitely a, a social awareness that the interests that I had as a child were not what everyone else liked. And that included music, movies, and trains was probably the big one. It started as a child with uh, Thomas the Tank Engine. And it escalated when I went to the Forney Museum down in Denver. Uh, the Forney used to be what is now REI's big headquarters for their co-op in Denver. And that building used to be a power terminal for the cable cars in Denver. The power plant used to have tracks that connected to uh, the big former, uh, I don't know if it was Colorado Southern or United, Union Pacific, excuse me, had a big uh, turntable and depot and shop uh, in outside of Denver in the area that is now Elish Gardens for a lot of people who may listen that are from Denver or Colorado in general. The, it used to just be creosote-filled, soaked, gross, unusable yards, and it, they used the Forney for portions of that. And one of the, well, actually, it is the largest steam locomotive in the United States. The big boy sits there. And my parents had taken a picture of me next to this wheel. And I was, I don't know, I don't even know if I was two feet high yet. I'm sitting next to this 86-inch driving wheel. And I'm smiling like a, a little goober. It just really, really put a, an impression in my mind but I've started realizing that a lot of the musical artists I appreciated liked trains, the big one being Neil Young. And I started kind of bringing that influence back into my life. And they just so happened to be doing a railroad camp at Philmont. And that was enough to get me like, I want, how, what can I do to work there? Well, you, yeah, you made it happen. Just for listeners who haven't been there, what is uh, the program at Metcalf? So Metcalf Station is a recreation of a stop along a lumber line for those of you out there that don't know there was a rail there were two railroads in Cimarron uh, they start the first one started in 1906 the St. Louis Rocky Mountain and Pacific Railway ran from Raton down through Cimarron to Ute Park which is a still a functioning town along Highway 64 in conjunction, at the same time they were launching that railroad, a lumber tycoon who was part of the Lax Maxwell Land Grant built a logging line that would connect to the St. Louis Rocky Mountain Pacific into Cimarron in order to travel up the North Ponyal Canyon into the Via Vidal uh, Ponyal Park. Uh, what is now Sealy Canyon at that Lori Canyon was what its original name was, uh, Ring Town which was a little bit south of Ring Place and Bonita, which is near present Dan Beard. And the logging line, that's, that's its original route to about 1915, 16 in that area. Uh, and then it, at some point in the 20s, they had pulled it up and towards Poblano, which is why that became a logging camp back in the day. 
Oh, I see. Uh, Crater Lake never had anything to do historically with uh, the Continental Tie and Lumber Company. It was just a way for two camps to exist with the same program if scouts weren't traveling in those regions, right? which right. is what a lot of the camps at Philmont function as. I was just going to say, so when crews come, you know, I've seen the iconic pictures on social media of the rail car and uh, it, what's it called? Like the one with like the handle that you push? Oh, the, well, the, the, it's a pump car. Pump car. It's essentially a, a hand car or a pump car. It was used as a maintenance away tool. As we told every scout that ever rode it, it is a tool, not a toy. A very bright yellow hand car that you would see in modern contexts in Looney Tune cartoons and Scooby Doo yeah. cartoons where they're pumping up and down on it. And of course, affectionately, a lot of people, especially advisors, would quote Blazing Saddles. Yeah. Because there is a hand car in that movie as well. So the crews get to, yeah, what do they, do they ride in it or do they? Well, at first we didn't have enough track for them to really ride it. It, it functioned in 2014 that first summer as a tool. It only took down heavy material to the workers, which is what it was for. Okay. <laughs> it didn't arrive until late that summer. In 15, we were very heavily reliant on it as a way to motivate scouts to actually do the program. And for the listeners out there, the program is hard manual labor. <laughs> you would always get the the constant joke of, oh, see, kids, this is why you stay in college. And mm. it would always be infuriating because it, there's a lot more involved. didn't matter the education level of how these people were educated in order to build that track. Sure. But it was a first summer they laid about – 1,200, 1,300 feet of track down a hill uh, adjacent to the original rail bed for that railroad. And they mapped out a section of it, original plans about two and a half miles of track because that was how much material they were able to accumulate from a siding in San Angelo, Texas, from David's connections with Herzog and uh, whoever else helped with that donation. And they were able to get all this rail out there and kind of map out a section of that rail bed where they could build this railroad for scouts to use as an idea of instead of burrows in the North country, we can pack you on a rail car and take you up to a camp. The plans have changed since then. And I think in the future, if they do complete as much track as they say they are, which I have full faith that they will, it's just a matter of how long it'll take. There's a lot of environmental issues further down the track that are starting to be taken care of with conservation. In mm -hmm. fact, the current conservation project at Metcalf is to redirect the, the North Ponyal Creek against a washout from the flood in 2015 that had taken out a good chunk of the rail bed. But that's the basic program is track construction. A lot of it's also maintenance. I was once told by a railroad workshop uh, a roundhouse who would do machine shop maintenance on those locomotives say that for every hour that a train is on the tracks it requires about four three to four hours of maintenance wow. and that goes to the same with the track wow so every year since 2016 there's been heavy emphasis on maintenance the final plan right now is is i think it's maybe three-fourths of a mile 
the original distance was going to be from Metcalf Station to a trail camp entrance at Cottonwood Canyon, where there is a water tank. That was the original plan because it's a little, it's about a mile out of Indian ridings. You would stop at a line shack, which is a stop along a, a rail line where you'd have a signalman there at all times in the early 1900s to make sure that the trains could be handed on messages from the telegraphs or that they could aware with lanterns or flags signals that there was something happening along that line. So you would have basically a pump car or a motor car come down every day with one staff member that was stationed at that stop. They'd bring their lunch down there and then they'd basically wait for crews so they could transfer transport them up to Metcalf. That's still the idea, and I don't know when that will happen. It could take 10 years. It could take 20 years. It could take two years. It just yeah. depends on a lot of factors that can't to fully be realized because essentially we are still trying to figure out this program. Sure. Well, thank you so much Yeah, for shedding some light on it. I've always been really intrigued by it because, like I said, I've never been there. I remember – um, hearing them talk about it. And I was bummed. I had kind of missed out on, on it in 2014, but very cool stuff. I'm, I'm glad that you found your way there because you have a passion for it. That's, you know, bigger than just, uh, you know, being at a Phil famous new camp. So for those listeners out there that want to learn more about Metcalf in general, we are currently in the proof book stages, like getting proof prints made of a complete history of the Continental Tie Lumber Company for the Crater Lake and Poblano alumni and the Philmont staff, essentially, and any Philmont, Cimarron, Kelfax County area, railroad history area people that are really interested in railroads. We've just written a final comprehensive book during the pandemic, and uh, we're hoping that to get it in print by November. That's there fantastic. was a a whole year of three former Metcalf alumni putting together this project. And we have a, we've uncovered a bunch of photos that no one's ever seen before. There's just a, a plethora of information that's finally filled the gaps of things that we just assumed. And it's all written down on record so we can have it for sale at Philmont and okay. other yeah. museums and places like where I'm currently volunteering at the Colorado Railroad Museum, where we can just make sure that this is a, a future resource yeah. For anyone interested in hi history for many facets. So that's titled The Cimarron and Northwestern Rail Railway, right? Pri oh, Pride it's and Glory. The, the book is Pride and Glory, yeah. So Pride and Glory comes from a just a uh, camp welcome, porch talk uh, joke. When we would introduce crews to the camp, kind of give them an introduction into what the camp was historically without breaking character, we would shout the, affectionately that this was the pride and glory of the North Ponyo Canyon. And then all the staff members that could visibly and audibly hear that that was said would repeat it to emphasize the, the canyon echoes that became quite a mainstay for our musical performances was to okay. focus on how that echo existed. Oh, neat. And that became the running title for the book. It was just a placeholder title at first, and we stuck with it, and I was able to design a pretty nice cover for it. So yeah. I'm very proud of it, and we're hoping to get some of that information in the world. Absolutely. That's awesome work. I will definitely be sure to 
link uh, in the episode description, a website link to it so people can get their hands on that. I am excited yeah. to, re- to read it myself. So that you collaborated with Tucker Baker and Matthew Hoosier. Uh, you guys collaborated, the three of you, to, to write that book. So Pride and Glory, The Cimarron and Northwestern Railway. Check it out, folks. It's going to be a good one. Well, do you want to transition to the spookier side of things? <laughs> sure. I mean, it is October. It's spooky season. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I kind of tend to ramble sometimes, and I think a lot of people listening are going to be like, oh, yep, that's Trevor, just kind of talking. Uh, ghost stories, there's 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 a lot of ghosts at Metcalf. It, it, granted, a lot of it didn't. If you visit the camp, there isn't a, a French Henry vibe to it at all. It's more of a just there are people that used to live here and they're still here kind of thing. The whole North Ponyal Canyon's kind of magical in the regards that you had the ancestral Puebloan Anasazi people out there and the, the Comanche and the Apache that were all in that area of the petroglyphs that they were making and all that. They just they all lived in that canyon. There's a lot of the writings that they made on those walls, the carvings that they were making were spiritual in nature that include the famous watcher and the whatnot, which is a spirit idea, um, someone who's supposed to look over you in the basic terms. I'm sure there's a lot more that I'm missing on that story. Now, in the North Ponyal Canyon, the first thing I ever experienced out there working at Metcalf that was a little strange would have been the first summer. And at that time, I didn't really realize what it was or what it could have been until later. And it basically was, I used to wear a wristwatch that I would put in a box full of my stuff, of my belongings inside the cabin. And one day it was just gone. And so I asked everybody if it had fallen out of my box and it got misplaced or if somebody needed to look at it. Nobody knew where it was. And I just was wrote it off as it, okay, whatever, it's it's gone. And I went on my days off and came back and the watch was sitting right on top of my box. And I asked everybody if they had put it back there. None of them answered in a way that I was like, oh, this is a prank. It was just there's my watch has been returned. That was the first and only thing I recall from 2015. But 2016 comes along. That second summer, I'm a little more used to that environment. And I'm realizing you know, kind of getting that feel of how the people that used to live out there lived. And that included a lot of the loggers and the homesteaders that relied on the railroad and the towns that were in the North Ponil to exist. There was quite a bit of settlements out there in the 19th century. In 16, we were doing just walking around the uh, property of Metcalf, the surrounding areas. We started coming across these strange plots in the ground. We knew that there are definitely graves in the North Ponil, especially some that are close to the cam- to the camp and the canyon. Where we were at, it looked a lot like a family plot. There mm-hmm. were quite a bit of just grass that was still green at the end of the summer when things were starting to die around it. It just seemed natural because a lot of it was sunk into. 
And back in the day, they didn't use preservatives on people and they didn't have uh, caskets that were meant to last time. So once they decompose, the ground kind of sinks. And that's what a lot of these sections on the hillsides look like sometimes, especially when you can tell where old foundations were and you can see evidence of where people were living. Uh, The 1918 pandemic definitely probably took a toll on people that lived out there, which is what I kind of gathered what might have happened. That's not truthful. I have no proof, no, no, nothing on any of that. But just a, a, a bunch of people probably buried in an area near Metcalf. It's not scary and it's not spooky because it's it's just kind of it kind of grounds you and makes you realize that this is not Disneyland it's Philmont Scout Ranch and we are living on a property that has so much history that it would make sense that there are people that are in the canyon still so my camp director that summer Zach Garmo him and Grayson Wolf was another program counselor just kind of scoffed it off when we found it and they're like oh there's no way that's a graveyard. There's no way that there's people buried up there. Zach tempted it and said, if there's a ghost up there, he better break the low E string on my guitar, (laughs) which is damn near impossible to do because it's a thick string on a guitar. Sure enough, campfire goes that night. His E string breaks. That same string during campfire, uh, maybe middle of it, and he had to use someone else's guitar the rest of the campfire. I, I, don't, I know he said it on stage. I don't know. I don't think he said it to the audience. But he definitely kind of turned and said, all right, I believe in you, North Ponyo Canyon spirit. And then we kind of made peace with it and moved on. And nothing else happened that summer. 17 happens. The first thing I experience is the first visual sighting of something. I had never, I've never seen a ghost before, never had any experience with a ghost before, for sure, officially, like that I can explain that I don't know what I saw. We were a staff of four that day. Yeah, it was. It was Mike O'Dwyer. It was me and Mike O'Dwyer were in the cabin, and it was Liam Black and Ben Cockfield were on the track. It was four of us in camp, and we, me and Mike liked to cook, and we tended to be the cooks for the camp, and we were doing meal prep. And he was working at the stove. And to give you a layout of that cabin, the stove is near the entrance of it. And there were two windows that were added in 2016 that were from the flood in 15 from Poneal's cabin. They had been attached to the walls of the cook shack cabin of Metcalf. And you could put them up and down, but they actually brought in more light than the canvas walls on those cabins. I was cooking, getting meal prep ready. We didn't have a sink. It was a Gatorade bucket on a wash basin. (laughs) And you you had to just pour pour the water out and wash your hands like that. But I was doing meal prep. I think I was cutting chicken. And I looked out and I thought I saw Liam pass by the window. And I walked to the front of the cabin. I started asking him a question. And I didn't realize he wasn't there anymore. What I saw wasn't I'm not going to add any details to it because it happened so fast. I'm not sure if, if I added details, if it'd be an accurate story. It was a, a someone wearing brown in dark brown pants, light brown shirt. Don't know if it was suspenders or not. Most likely suspenders. I can't remember if he had a hat. But somebody walked past. 
And I thought it was Liam coming up to grab other track material for the crews on the track. And Mike was like confused because I had walked out and even got off the porch and circled the cabin because what I saw didn't make any sense because we only had one crew in camp and they were on the track and all their advisors were with them. And it was just me and Mike in the cabin areas. Someone in interps wouldn't be up there if I can account for the two of them down there. So that was the first weird wonky thing that I saw that summer. The second thing had to do with what would probably be a native spirit. Sheen Carroll, who worked at Indian Writings this past summer, he told me a story this past uh, 4th of July about what he thinks that it was. And I can't recall exactly what it is right now, but it was seen by Jimmy Fritz at Head of Dean near Campos Heck in 2012 or 13, whenever he worked out there. And it was this, what the crews would say was a white thing. And it's this solid mass that doesn't really have a shape. The crews would think that it was staff members taunting them at Campos Heck. Now that thing made its way to Metcalf that year, or it just travels the North North Country, uh, the magical North Country. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> It it was this white thing, and I was talking to David O'Neill during Advisor's Coffee, and he's talking to me about projects, and on the the cabins face a canyon wall. You're you're in a you're basically in the canyon Metcalf, or for the older listeners, what it was old camp was just this white thing on the canyon wall moving behind bushes and trees. And it kind of, at first, when I first saw it, looked like could have been a deer or a mountain lion, something kind of visibly moving in that area. But once it came out of the trees again, it was just this solid white mass. Hmm. And I don't know exactly what it is or what it was, but at some point during in 17, at least everyone in camp finally saw what I saw and I didn't feel crazy anymore. (laughs) I think I saw it again later that summer. We were doing a campfire at the cabins during a rainy night and lightning thunder crashing and it kind of moved near one of the red roofs. And that was when the rest of the staff finally saw it because I think I saw it and then they confirmed it. Mm-hmm. But we're not really sure what that was, I, and it's made an appearance out there. Eighteen, obviously, not so much with the fire, and nineteen for sure, definitely uh, had people talk about it. When I purposely tried not to talk too much about some of the ghost stuff that was happening, what happened at Philmont, as rumors spread pretty easily out there, mm-hmm. a lot of the ghost stuff that was happening was getting shared by other staff members at other camps to where everyone thought that we were just as haunted as French Henry is, which 19 definitely had a lot of activity. But in 17, a couple other instances where I would see some figure walking towards campsites where I would catch a glimpse of it and look, and it just wasn't there anymore. What triggered a lot of the stuff that summer is what Tim would say, or Frisco. He was he's the past current. Well, he was the current camp director for this past summer at Metcalf. I've worked with him in seventeen, eighteen, and nineteen. 
he found this what looked like uh, this uh, section of bone on an index finger near the red roof. He pulled it out of the ground and kind of brought it and asked, like, this is strange, isn't it? And that's when things started occurring. Uh, that summer, I remember being in my tent one night. Something was walking around it. it I, I thought it was a deer or something just kind of going between the can't tents and there was no shadows. And I remember it being a moonlit night to where I could see everything in the tent. And I couldn't, I was like, all right, that's enough. Please go away. And I went to bed as best as I could without freaking myself out. Yeah. And then he was saying that there was stuff happening to him where he was having uh, night fevers and uh, these sleep apneas happening where a hooded man, or not a hooded man, but a man wearing a black trench coat and a big black cowboy hat were in his tent. And it scared him so much that he put the bone back where he found it and things kind of died off. Wow. 18, nothing happened. Uh, the fire, we only made it out to Metcalf a couple times, mainly to do the big maintenance project I had that summer, which was to tear the track up and pull the grade down so that way it was easier for scouts to go up on the pump cars. 19 was quite the ghost fest, at least in my experience. Uh, that camp started off with a strange energy when we got there. I think it may have been because the groundbreaking was starting on the on the depot. I don't know if them moving dirt kind of prompted something to make itself known or not. It was also the first summer we had girls out there. And I don't know if the ghosts had some issues with that as uh, historically speaking, women in that canyon would have never done the manual labor. And it's a, an incredible aspect that we have kind of broken that stereotype to include them at that camp now. But for somebody who is probably dead a uh, hundred plus years ago to see a girl in overalls doing swinging a hammer may not make them very happy. There was a girl on my staff. Her name is Montana Ludlow, and she uh, had she has uh, not a medium, but she's kind of clairvoyant, and she was able to see whatever was around. When I worked with her that, at the beginning of the summer that year. A lot of the things that I did not tell the staff and refused to even talk about because I didn't want them to be scared to work there. And also, I didn't want to put any ideas in any of their heads. One night, ghost stories started coming up, and Montana started talking about what she was seeing. And it was confirm confirmation on my part that I wasn't making this stuff up or, or the information wasn't being re-retold from me from somewhere else. Um, there's two full body apparitions, I guess is what you'd call them nowadays, that are at Metcalf. One is this black trench-coated man, and the other is the railroad. Well, I don't know if he's a railroad worker. He might be just a homesteader, but somebody who is definitely wearing what we wear as in Terps, uh, overalls, big baggy shirts, either overalls or suspenders, that kind of thing. 
one time I'm pretty sure he was wearing a hat a lot like the one I used to wear, a big flat-brimmed brown cowboy hat that looked like Clint Eastwood's in the uh, Good, Bad, and Ugly movie series. He He's definitely the lesser of the two evils, at least for 19. Uh, the The girls definitely were reporting that they were feeling very uncomfortable in the tents, they would talk about how things were circling their tents and it just was crazy to start hearing other people experience what I was feeling and experiencing previous years. As soon as we got out there, there was a night before crews showed up where we were in the cabins and a cold breeze started circling around us while we were uh, just talking at the dinner table. The doors kind of rattled a bit when there wasn't a lot of wind out there when things were around me, I remember feeling something behind me. I don't know if it was touching me or not, but it was like you could feel the cold air and you could feel it moving. And that was the other crazy part because that cabin, which is the cook shack, the cabin on the left, when you go to Metcalf that says post office, there's a sign that says post office underneath it. And that's the cabin where we cooked that cabin had a situation in 17 that Patrick experienced on the anniversary of the flood, which would have been two years after. That night, roughly around the same time that that uh, tragedy occurred, the table uh, he he heard something uh, fall over in there, and that night he had a crew that didn't know how to put their bear bags up, and he was purposely staying up late. So he could make sure that they could put him in the cabin so no bears would come to get it. He ended up staying up all night and hearing that noise. And he thought that it was them trying to put the bear bear bags in the cabin. And the doors weren't moved. And he opened them up and saw that nothing looked out of place and went back to bed. Ten minutes later, noise again. So he's thinking, okay, maybe this is them this time. Goes out tries to figure out that situation, same thing, nothing's going on. And then he goes back to bed and it starts happening again. And that time he just said he played his banjo or tried to fall asleep until he yeah. couldn't couldn't yeah. hear it anymore. And then when he came in that morning, chairs were moved and knocked over and some weird nonsense was going on. But that was something about the cabin area that we cooked in had some situations to where that ghost was very present that summer, the scariest thing that ever happened in my whole life, which at the time wasn't that scary because when it was happening, it was just like, okay, this is happening. But when you take it in now, and I think about it, it's like, oh wow, that actually happened. It was there. And I know that I'm not crazy because my tent mate who is my assistant camp director. Essentially we both stayed in the radio room because there was enough room in the second cabin in the back to do that. And we both knew that being separated by the creek was a little creepy. And we wanted to stay on the same side because we we were both veterans. We'd been there multiple years. And we knew that we didn't want to sleep alone on that side of the creek. So that night I wake up. Nothing wakes me up. It's just like... Uh, I'm in my tent, or not in the tent, I'm in the cabin in the radio room, and I can just feel that there's somebody standing by me. I wake up, 
and there's this guy standing there. I start by looking at his torso, which is right in front of me, basically, when I open my eyes, because I sleep on my side. And when I open my eyes, there's a man, man's um, pants sitting there, uh, standing there, and he's wearing they're black pants with a very thin white pinstripe that were pretty spaced out. And I trying to figure out what's happening here. And I'm kind of in a sleep paralysis to where I, I can't, I, I can't find the energy to move my body. I'm able to kind of look up at what I'm looking at. And it's a man wearing old white shirt, uh, a big white puffy shirt with uh, elbow garters, the black bands that you'd keep to make sure that the shirt didn't bunch up in an old trench coat and a uh, black vest. And the vest has a chain, which is most likely his pocket watch. That's all I could see because by the time my energy was like enough to flip my body over, uh, I didn't get a look at his face or if he was even wearing a hat. But that ghost was something that almost everyone on staff in 19 saw at some point in one form or another, whether it was full body or uh, occurrences, knocking things off shelves, uh, stuff like that. And what we at that time now is corrected information in the book that we wrote on Metcalf and the railroad in general was Metcalf was a stop along the original railroad to transport or to transmit messages by telephone to other places in Cimarron. At that time, we thought that there was a Sheriff Metcalf because in an old book written in the 60s by Lawrence Murphy called In God's Country Tonight, there was the description that Metcalf was named after a sheriff named Metcalf who was whooped down in quotes as to what they recalled as what had happened to him in that canyon, which he was sent out there to take squatters off the land grant. We found out writing the book that that is a true story, but the name is different. It would have been a Sheriff George Cook, who in 1888 was trying to pull squatters off the Maxwell land grant. Of course, the famous Maxwell land grant to the listeners is what gave Philmont the ability to exist uh, the squatters were likely miners or gold claim people that, or, or even just homesteaders that were trying to exist out there when the British acquired that property. And he was deputized to get them off and died for it. And what I saw matches a lot of descriptions, at least with a lot of historical interpreters and research that I've figured out about what sheriffs looked like in that time period, late 1800s, would have been the tombstone, like Kurt Russell type outfit, big black brimmed hat, yeah. black trench coat, black vest, white shirt, black pants. Um, and and when I woke up that morning, I asked Tim how he slept, and he was like, oh, it was a little strange. And he's like, you're not going to believe me, but he was standing by my bed last night. And I said, the same thing happened to me. He was a very 
I don't know, calming. It wasn't a calming presence. It was it was not malicious and in intent. He was standing there without his trench coat on. When every other time we saw him, he had the trench coat on. So I'm assuming it was some kind of honor thing, being the fact that I was the camp director and he was my roadmaster, which on a railroad, somebody who does the track maintenance and construction could have just been somebody that saw, oh, these are the people that were in charge and I'm going to respect them by taking my coat off. But Tim had seen him plenty of times in 2017 in the black trench coat and he said that his face looked mangled and I don't know for sure exactly what that meant. Sometimes it sounded like he said like he could have been hung because there might have been marks around his neck. So that could have explained why he died or, or whatnot. I think just us starting to talk about more of these situations were bringing up a lot of things. The second really scary experience that happened that summer, which probably was the last one on my personal account, was near the end of the summer. We had had an OATC, excuse me, OATC crew out there with uh, or Hannah Stewart was one of the guides, and she's a wonderful. Oh, she's been in so many departments: ranger, OATC, uh, conservation, and whatnot. But she was on the porch, and we were talking because we had worked together a few times. And after campfire, we would take up all the lanterns that we had up to the campfire bowl in order to light the stage because the campfire bowl that we have at Metcalf is off to the side of the stage. So it doesn't really do anything for light. All the, we had seven lanterns and that included just the regular hurricane lamps, the blue ones that, that burn kerosene oil. And then we had a couple special railroad ones that I never counted in my inventory because the, everyone knew the hurricane lamps and would walk away with them and take them to tents or, go to the bathroom or whatever they had to do at night with light. And so what they had done is we had all brought them back to the camp on the porch of the kitchen cabin, the cook shack, and all seven lamps were sitting there and I'm talking to them on the porch. And in my periphery, I see one of the lanterns get picked up and walked off and I just thought somebody was going to use it to do something, and I do my inventory to make sure all the lanterns are there. All seven of seven of them are sitting there, so some phantom light, just or, or some phantom thing, basically recreated that lantern and took it off the cabin and walked off with it. And Hannah remembered seeing it too, because it was like, "Did you guys just like see someone walk off with a lantern?" And they both. We're like, yeah, why? And I told them there, all seven of them are sitting on the porch. So that was that was a little strange. There'd be nights where we would be in the cabins, and in order, to, like after campfire, we would have our wind down, fat kid time sessions. Yeah, <laughs> and just <laughs> and just kind of relax. Sometimes you'd keep a couple lanterns on the porch just in case crews had to come down to talk to us or any emergencies that would happen before we went to bed. And there'd be nights where lantern light would either come and go, and it, it would feel like they were either taking the lantern off the porch, taking it with them, or light was coming to the porch that looked like a lantern, and it was just 
unexplainable and I, I don't really know what was happening there, but I never saw any figures. It was just lights, a lot like how people talk about the French Henry lights and you know, the footsteps at French Henry would happen kind of at Metcalf, a lot more subtle, a lot more like uh, cowboy boots than miners working boots. Yeah. Just, just a lot of strange things that were happening that a lot of people were experiencing. And I, I think it really grounds you to realize that there was life lived there before. Uh, nothing was ever malicious or, or scary um, on my experience, of course. Um, some of the girls that were at Metcalf in 19 have different perspectives as to the feeling towards what they were experiencing. And it, it unfortunately, I hate that, that they had to go through that. Um, I think it just depends on the summer that you have at Philmont. It seems some of the more ghost-prone areas of the ranch are uh, dependent on the staff you have. Uh, I think 2017 had a lot of issues at French Henry with the staff really trying to find these things and it, things happening to them. Uh, 19 kind of started off us not talking about it and then all of us experiencing something and then keep wanting it to happen. Uh, the doors in my cabin would move all the time on, on my uh, sleeping cabin. It didn't have an actual latch on it. It was held together by a rubber band, but it was there was never a breeze in there that could push the door open and close. One night it slammed open with people guests that were sleeping in the front area of that cabin waking up to a, a door slamming and i was i usually cannot be woken in my sleep unless my name is called or something is loud enough for me to register it but for some reason that door slamming wasn't enough but there there was just a lot of strange things that would that would be prompted by i think us wanting things to happen yeah, the white thing sense. had been seen plenty of times and the, the two men were seen quite frequently, but it was, it was a wonderful experience for that stuff to happen because it justifies, you know, the fact that I wasn't crazy. I in fact watched a Netflix uh, show today, something about real life ghost stories. And it was about this old mining guy that was scaring this family in a house and it kind of freaked me out a little bit because it was very familiar to see yeah. that there was a similar time period person scaring me and my staff in the same way in, in a rural nowhere land, essentially, especially, uh, I mean, Philmont's definitely not a nowhere land, but if you think about it, it being only occupied three months of the summer, empty most of the time. I think those spirits that are out there are curious that, oh, there's people out here and they're checking it out and whatnot. Yeah, that is, all of that is so interesting. Thank you for sharing for the yeah, listeners. Yeah, no problem. And uh, especially for those of us, myself included, who've never been to Metcalf Station. There's just so much rich history and I can tell you have a huge passion for it. So thank you so much for sharing all that, Trevor. Um, yeah, you're welcome. So kind of as we wrap up, do you, is there anybody you want to um, nominate to be on the show? Uh, yeah, there's a few people, uh, two in particular. Um, 
I would love to hear Tucker Baker on the podcast. That man has so many great stories and he tells them so well. I think I tell stories in a similar fashion, but he can do it in a way where you're physically there and you can see everything that he's saying. Uses a lot of euphemisms that are just fantastic. And to hear him talk about his who dat story at the top of Big Red, which I'm pretty sure he'd hate having to tell again, uh, <laughs> would be a worthwhile, uh, hasty story. And I would love to if you can even get a contact with him, he's kind of elusive nowadays. But my camp director at Metcalf Station in 2016, Zachary Garmo, he's the reason why I got back into photography and why I started getting farther back into my roots of folk music and blues. Um, he he was really important in my in Philmont, I guess, in my perspective of what Philmont is, he kind of shaped it because he was the Philmonter for me. He loved the programs every camp we worked at, and he just loved ate up program and was so good at teaching. And it'd be wonderful to hear what he has to say about his tenure at the camp. Awesome. Those are two great names. As you may know, sometimes I like to ask my uh, interviewees if they have an 11th essential. So Hmm. Um, I know you don't hike a lot, but if you had to take <laughs> an 11th essential with you um, to Metcalf or to, uh, you know, a museum yeah. you might be frequenting, is, what, is there something you always keep with you? Um, it, it won't ever be in my, my backpack, but uh, it's a couple of things, actually. I guess it would be the 11th essential, and they're always in my left pocket to this day. And it's a, a Zippo, a glasses cleaning cloth, and my comb. <laughs> because uh, that rule number one to look good at all times kind of thing. I hate when my glasses have anything on them and I need my hair to look good. And I've come into many situations where a lighter has been pretty helpful. I think that's already an essential yeah, yeah. <laughs> or some form of fire starting, but it's always in my pocket. And that's those are kind of my essentials from, from those lists or, and what I've added to them. I like that. I like that a lot. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Trevor. This has been really, really fun and historic and informative and um, spooky and uh, just uh, it's been a fun one. So thank you for thank sharing you. your stories and um, bye. Bye.